Please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 54. It is the section after probably the most famous of all passages. Uh, maybe maybe uh, Isaiah 6 with the holy, holy, holy um, is, the, is maybe the most famous, but Isaiah 53, one of those two are. And so last week, uh, we spoke about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. There are four suffering servant uh, songs, uh, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53. And they speak to the coming Messiah, to Jesus, who would come and bear the iniquity. And I think the, the gospel really is summed up when you think about um, verses, you know, really 4, 5, and 6 of Isaiah 53, but you could probably find it all over Isaiah 53. But when we think about this, that Jesus, uh, this coming suffering servant, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6 is who we are. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, meaning on the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. There's this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. There's this idea that we have a substitute who takes our place so that we might have peace and be reconciled to the Father, to be justified by grace through faith. It is not a work. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He speaks about it all over. Uh, and he says, you know, this is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that you do not earn your salvation, but rather it is earned for you. So, Christian, are you saved by works? You know, we, we very quickly we go, no, but you're also wrong. Because we're saved by the works of Christ. We're saved by His works. Our works we're not saved by. We're saved by another's. And so in the midst of that, we get to chapter 54. And the first, the first thing that we see in the midst of this is this idea of singing. And, and really, if I could preach from the bulletin for a second, um, I will. Uh, but on page 7, the song we just sang is really where we are in the midst of Isaiah 54. Because you have a group of people... In Isaiah 54, now, now this prophecy, when it was originally written, it was written for a future generation that would be in exile. So this future generation that would be in exile, um, and I'm thinking about this particular generation that is receiving this prophecy, that is ha- or has received it, and is reading it in the midst of this um, re- Babylonian exile, and, and they are afflicted that their faith is weak, that their persecution rages, and that their, their kingdom is small, and they feel like a small people. And, and the weight of their own sin is bearing down upon them to the point where they go, should we even you know, continue in faithfulness? Or should we just assimilate to the culture? Should we just become essentially you know, non-Christians? Should we just give up our faith and walk in the midst of secular you know, therapeutic deism? that the world says is what we need. And I think that there are many Christians today who are wrestling and grappling with that. There are also many people today, and and I think that we would be amiss um, knowing that in the body of Christ that there are many around us who who struggle with with their faith, and they struggle with relationships. And and I don't know if you felt this recently, but have you ever felt like there's this great weight just pressing down upon you? And to the point where you feel 
that there's oppression upon you. Affliction is, is, is real. And to the point where, um, uh, and I see this among, among people, where their anxiety wells up within them, um, that they feel perpetually like a six-year-old on the way to the dentist. I can't say it any better. Like, I remember being six years old and on the way to the dentist, and I remember the butterflies would just be all over my stomach. And then they would leave as I would go to the treasure trunk to get a, a toy because to, I knew that I was done for six months. But I will say that, you know, brothers and sisters, there is relational discord. There is a world that wants to, you know, distract us. There is an enemy that comes against us, seeking to devour us. And there, in the midst of that, there's also this, this flesh, this flesh nature, this, this carnal nature that lives and resides within us that pulls us back and, and wants to play in the dust of the world. And that feels heavy. Heavy. And so in the midst of that, um, Isaiah, you're know, speaking to a group of people that will be exiled. He gives us three images in Isaiah 54. Three really sermon images and metaphors to give us hope in the midst of the heaviness and the affliction and the persecution and the discord and the frustration of this world. He gives us three vibrant images. And those images... Um, well, we're just going to read them. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word in Isaiah 54? Again, three images. Um, they're separated the first three verses, uh, and then we go through um, four through uh, ten, and then on. So here we go. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the, de- the desolate cities. That's the first illustration. Second, fear not. For you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the day of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Third illustration. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. 
All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So, three illustrations, and let me go through these three illustrations so that you understand uh, where we are. Essentially, we see first this idea of the barren woman. It is rejoicing in the midst of great sorrow. And it, it actually says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into the singing and cry aloud. Now, in the ancient world, children were how... Well, children really were your social security. I mean, the more children you had, the more arms you had to work the, the ground, the farms. And, and really, even today, you know, as you have children, you're like... And some of you think this way. Which one of them is going to be nice to me in my old age? Some of you have thought about that. And, and, and you might think, huh, I hope the others can send money to the nice one to help take care of me, right? I mean, so, so who's going to take care of me? Well, really, in, in the ancient world, too, there was this idea that, that you were not fulfilled if you did not have children. We think about this in the ancient world. We think of, in First Samuel, this idea of a, a woman named Hannah who had a little boy named Samuel. Now, um, you know, in, in matter of fact, it, it says in this, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, I just want to read this for you. Um, and this is Hannah who is crying out because she, she longs uh, to have a, a child. And so as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. So, so think about this. This woman is so moved in the midst of the temple that she's praying. Her lips are moving because she's praying from her heart, but no sound is coming out. So Eli, like a very kind and compassionate pastor, says this. He goes, you must be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I, I so appreciate Hannah's you know, um, truthfulness there because she says, out of my great anxiety and vexation. Those are good terms for us. Because in the midst of your anxiety and vexation, there is a sense in which we should be crying out to the Lord. Lord, would you change my circumstance? Lord, could you help me to trust you? Lord, will you walk with me in the midst of this? Then Eli answered, because he'd already stuck his foot in his mouth, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and he knew her in a Hebrew way. We call that, you know, anyway. And the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, 
for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, the reason she called him Samuel is because Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word heard of God. So the Lord has heard me. Now, that's an example of the barrenness that we see. So there's, there's this idea that the barrenness, but look at the promise that we see. The promise is this, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her, her who is married, says the Lord. He says this, he goes, you need to enlarge your tent. You need to let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out and, hold, and do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. And essentially what he's saying is, all the kids are coming home. Now, for those of you, like we are just in the process now of becoming empty nesters. And I am keenly aware now that when our daughters come back from JMU and when we have you know, Benjamin and Ryan over along with William, our house becomes smaller uh, very quickly. And some of you understand that. And, and it's, it's wonderful. It's a joyful thing. But I will tell you that there's a sense in which there are times when we need to live in a very small house and it'd be very easy. And there's other times where we need to enlarge the tents. And essentially the promise of God is that I will be with you and there will come a time when you will sing because those who are in anxiety and vexation, that we will enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out and do not hold back. Just continue to add on. And he says, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now, the ironic thing here in the midst of this prophecy is that Judah is bereft of a temple. There's no temple. There is no wall. We see that in 586, the temple was destroyed. The wall was crumbling and the people had been displaced. And so the people who are reading this prophecy, who are in a Babylonian exile, are reading this going, is God big enough to do this? And will he do it for me and for my children? That's what they're thinking. Because they're reading Isaiah and they're like, really? It seems like I'm afflicted and I'm persecuted and I'm small. Lord, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fulfill your promise? Now, this particular passage in Isaiah 54 is also quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. If you have your, your Bibles open, um, there's this idea um, that we see of uh, in Galatians chapter 4. We see this passage being referred to. So the Apostle Paul uses this. I'm in verse 27 of Galatians 4. You'll see it. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, What he's saying is this. He's saying Abraham messed up in the book of Genesis because Abraham thought that the promise of God was that he would have a son through his wife, Sarah, and because she was old and barren, that this promise was not going to be fulfilled. So what he did was he took it into his own hands and decided to take Hagar as a wife or as the the one who would bear the children of Abraham, and she gave birth to Ishmael. And God said, no, no, I don't want you to take um, your salvation or the promises into your own hands, but rather I want you to wait patiently for the promise that I will give you. Now, this is so hard because I'm looking at what Abraham did and, and, and I can't believe that Sarah went along with it. But what we read in the book of Galatians is between the children of promise and the children of 
of, of, of really our own of flesh. It says this in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, and that was the, the, the child of Sarah and Abraham, like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What, but what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free women. Now, what he's saying here, and again, this is what he's alluding to in Isaiah 54, but through Galatians, is this, is that do not try to earn your salvation, but rather be children of the promise. You know, we even sang that, you know, you know pass, pass the peace, you know, you know, pass the promise onto our children, right? And there's this idea, but, but we, we forget this very quickly. And we want to take measures into our own hands to work out our salvation. And really what God says is, you can't earn your salvation. The only way that salvation comes to you is through the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. His works, not your works. So again, the idea, the first image that we see is this barren woman in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 through 3. And again, that's quoted in the book of Galatians. Go back to Isaiah 55. I want to show you this. Again, Isaiah is probably the most oft-quoted Old Testament book in all of the New Testament. So we're back in Isaiah 54. The second image, and this is a, this is a great image here. It says in verse 4, so if the first one is, is to sing, sing because of the promises, even in the midst of your affliction, the second one is this, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Now, the image there is, this, is found in verse 5. For your maker, meaning the God of the universe, is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And he is your husband. This, this covenant um, husband who loves you. And the image that we see here in, in, is found in verse 6. It is, For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And now, the illusion here is that this youthful wife, similar to the, the Old Testament prophet Hosea, this youthful wife has sort of wandered away from her husband. That this, this wife has deserted her husband, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Now, why would a young wife be cast off? Well, a young wife would be cast off because she has you know, fallen into adultery, because she is not doing what she is called to do. That, that she is now, and, and that harkens back to this idea of, of chapter 4, because when you are not doing what you're called to do, when you are doing the things that you shouldn't do, quite frankly, in the book of Hosea, when Gomer is found out to be a prostitute, not once, not twice, but three times, and the prophet Hosea continues to take her back, there is a tremendous amount of shame going on, and there's a tremendous amount of disgrace coming in. And there's this picture, this picture that we have there is of the Holy One, you know, who comes to the people of God, and he says, I will restore you. Like a, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. You know, essentially, he's saying you know, that I will love you. 
He says, you know, in verse 7 and 8, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. That's, that's the idea of sending them into exile is the idea of desertion. But he says, but with great compassion I will gather you. You know, for a moment I let you wander off, but now with great compassion I will gather you. He says, in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now, there's this idea of a, a moment... Of, of, of frustration or anger, but an, but an everlasting love. I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, when we think about that, we think about the idea of Jesus being a kind and generous um, Savior, approaching us and restoring us like a young wife. Um, now, I've been married a few years now. Um, and my wife's gone, so I can say all kinds of stuff now. Uh, she's in children's church, and they can't hear me. Um, but I will tell you that as, as, as a young man, um, I was not um, as kind and gentle and compassionate as I could have been to my young wife. And there were times when um, I would say things that were not gentle and were not kind. And, and, and for, you know, as, as you think about young, young brides, um, I would say that for the most part, young young brides and young women are very um, tender, and there's also a sense in which they're also very insecure. And so, when you place um, sort of a bold, brash, foolish young man together with it with a, a woman who is wants to do well but is also insecure, I mean, you have a lot of problems, right? I mean, like you have a lot of tears that flow in the first year of marriage. And, and you know, and Katie cried sometimes too. You guys get that? All right, good. All right, I just want to see that. Just, just for a second. She's not here, you know? So, but that's the idea that this, this insecure, disgraced, shame-filled young bride is, is, is lifted up by her husband who loves her and is gentle with her. He doesn't walk by this this you know um, insecure, disgraced, anxiety you know filled woman and just kind of you know give her like, hey, get up and follow me. That's not what Jesus does. That's not what the God of the universe does to us. In the midst of our own brokenness, in the in the midst of our own sinfulness, the image here is that He picks her up. He gathers her in His arms. And says, I will love you with an everlasting love. I mean, that's, that's, what, you know, that's what we want, right? I mean, that's what I think one of the things I, I learned, and you know, I'll digress just for a second. One of the things I learned, and I, I, I learned this really late. I'm, I'm, I, um, it takes a while for me to get this. Is that when there's you know, a disagreement within your marriage, um, one of the things that, as a guy, as a man, one of the things that you can say that is very, very helpful to your, your wife is this. It's like, I know that we're fighting right now, or some people might call it intense fellowship. <laughs> we're having some intense fellowship right now, and I'm a little frustrated, but I want you to know that I love you, and we're going to get through this. I might need a little bit of time by myself. I may need to go hit 10 buckets of golf balls really hard, 
I may need to go to the batting cage. I may need to go sweat some things out, but I need you to know that we're going to be okay and that I love you. We're going to get through this. It's going to be okay. I tell you what, I wish I had learned that in the first couple years of marriage. I wish I had known that. It would have you know, helped build some security you know, with my young bride. Just do that. You know, guys, just take that. If you learn nothing else today, take that as an application. But, but, but here's the person of Jesus. You know, think about this. You know, and, and the person of Jesus, and I, and I take these quotes from uh, Gentle and Lowly. You know, and he says, um, Dane Ortland says this, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. But Jesus continued to, to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit, but Jesus loves to the end. I mean, that's the picture of this redeeming, gentle, powerful husband who will come and he will love with an everlasting love. And he is described, but with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I mean, I I love that. I love that. But with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Now, think about who is receiving this message. The people are in the midst of exile. The people are living in the midst of a hostile world. And he is trying to comfort them. He is trying to build them up and say, no, I care about you. I have not forsaken you. I have not forgotten you. I will be near to you. You ever been around somebody that has had such a difficult, painful thing happen in their life that when they go to hug you, they literally collapse into your arms. I mean, and sometimes it's shocking because all of a sudden you have the weight of that person upon you. And if you're not ready for it, you're going to drop them. The Lord God never drops us in the midst of that. He always holds us and walks with us and says, I will be with you. That's comforting. You know, Jesus says this. He says, you know, let me quote this uh, book again. He says, um, consider what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11 when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, a yoke is the heavy crossbar laid on an oxen to force them to drag farming equipment through the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for it is a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver only to hear him shout back sputtering, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters by myself. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. That's what we are all like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. He's saying, you know, we, we refuse the help of Christ because we want to do it ourselves. Essentially, we want to be the Abraham and Hagar in the midst of our own lives rather than being children of the promise, living in faith, trusting patiently. So he goes on to say this um, 
in verse 11, he, here's this third metaphor that we find in, in chapter 54. And these are beautiful metaphors that point us in this direction. And this one actually is not so much talking about when the exiles w- will be uh, taken out of the captivity of the, of the Babylonian captivity by the people of the Persians, by Cyrus, uh, back in 537 uh, BC, but rather this is one speaking about an eternal you know, appeasement, an eternal peace that is promised for the future. In verse 11, it says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. So, so notice what he says. You're, you're barren, you're full of anxiety and vexation, or you're, you're full of shame and disgrace, or you're one who is storm-tossed in the midst of life. You know, you're trying to make a decision. You can't figure out what, what is the right decision. How many of you have, have you pled with God and said, Lord, would you please show me the way? Because I'm so frustrated right now. I don't know what I should do. And every time you sort of feel like you're about to make a decision, you feel like you're maybe a two-year-old child in the midst of the waves in the Outer Banks, and you just keep getting rolled over on that wave over and over and over again. That's the idea of being storm-tossed and not comforted. Because i got to tell you, when you're small and you're being storm-tossed, there is no comfort. You're just trying to gasp for air. And he says, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Now, I had to look that up. Because I was like, what in the world is antimony? And antimony is actually um, this, this silver-like stone. And it's saying that I will begin to restore the walls around the city. And I will lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Now, if you do not think about the new Jerusalem found in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that is exactly what we're getting. You're thinking that John is actually thinking about it, to the point where, you know, I almost, let's turn there. You got your Bibles, turn over to Revelation, chapter 21. I know I'm having you turn, I'm having you work during the sermon. This is how you participate, by turning pages with me. Um, the new heaven and the new earth and, and the new Jerusalem found in chapter 21, verse 9 says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he carried me away into the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels. Now just go on a little further down. Uh, in verse 19, it says, The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, then agate, then emerald, then onyx, then carnelian, then chrysolite, then beryl, then topaz, then uh, chrysophrase. I don't even know what that one is. Uh, jacinth, amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. That's why we call them the pearly gates. Have you ever heard that? Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple. But when we look at in Isaiah 54, it's saying, I am going to restore the city. Now, they are thinking about Jerusalem, but I think that there's this allusion to um, a Jerusalem that will be forever. Because in, in verse 14, it says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, for it shall, shall not come near you. Now, this is a people who have been subjugated by the Babylonians. So they're fearful all the time. You know, they don't want to pray to Yahweh because they're worried that some other, you know, that Nezer, you know, from the Veggie Tales is going to come out and throw them in the fiery furnace, okay? I mean, this is what's going on in the midst of the Babylonian people. They're fearful. You know, the, the, the people of Judah living in Babylon are fearful, and they feel like they almost have to assimilate into culture, otherwise they will be oppressed. But the promise here is that God will establish, and he will establish a holy city, a new Jerusalem, 
and in righteousness it shall be established. And there will be no oppression, there will be no fear, no more terror. It shall not come near you. And he says, if anyone stirs up strife, it won't be for me. And he says, you know, I've created, um, in, in verse 17, I mean, there's this beautiful promise to us. It says, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Now, the idea there is this idea of eternity. So does eternity change how you believe and how you live today? What you will pursue? Jonathan Edwards actually says this. He's talking about eternity when he says this. He says, where will all of our worldly enjoyments be? when we are laid in the silent grave. Resolve, and he says this about himself, I am resolved to live as I, sh- as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved, I resolve to live as I shall wish I had done 10,000 ages hence. Essentially what he's saying is this, he goes, I want to live like I'll be living in 10,000 years. And then he says this, he goes, Lord, Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. It's not the most poetic thing, but I think it gets to the point there, right? Stamp eternity on my eyeballs so that I'm fixing my vision and gazing into the future of eternity rather than this world that is finite. You know, I I think about that with regard to um, how we are called to do that. You know, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we are all going, going, going. Whether imminent or unimportant, gentle or cruel, rich or poor, old or young, we are all going and will soon be gone. He says, beauty is only temporary. He says, Sarah was one of the loveliest women and the admiration of the court of Egypt. Yet a day came when even Abraham, her husband, said, sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. Strength of the body is only temporary. David was once a mighty man of valor, the slayer of the lion and the bear and the champion of Israel against the Goliath. Yet a day came when even David had to be nursed and ministered to in his old age like a child. Wisdom and power of the brain are only temporary. Solomon was once a marvel of knowledge and all the kings of the earth came to hear his wisdom. Yet even Solomon in his latter days played the fool and allowed his wives to turn his heart after other gods. As humbling and painful as these truths may sound, it is good for all of us to realize them and take them to heart. The houses we live in, the homes we love, the riches we accumulate, the professions we follow, the plans we formulate, the relations we enter into, they are only for a time. What is seen is temporary. This world in its present form is passing away. Now, I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to give us perspective so that we will live for eternity, that we will invest in things that will never perish or fade or be spoiled, that you will long for the day when Jesus will return and he will usher in the new city and that you will be with him forever. There should be this longing. And I've said this before. Like at a funeral of a, of a believer, somebody who loved Jesus, there should be a tinge of jealousy in the midst of the congregation because you should look at the coffin and go, dang it, they beat me. They beat me to heaven. And we should long for that. 
You see, the, what Isaiah 54 is trying to give to the exiles, so people living in a foreign land, a people living in, in a place that is hostile to their way of life, is this. Like, think about eternity. Stamp eternity on your eyeballs so that you will be living for what will be forever. So whether you are a barren woman, whether you are uh, the, 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 the cast-aside young bride or... or We need the the image of this eternal, invincible city that we will live in and reside and that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and that you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The the question becomes, how do I apply this sermon? How do I I think through these things? I'm just going to give you a couple quick things to think about. Almost out of time. A couple minutes. First, um, when we think about eternity, let's examine ourselves and ask the question, how are you using your time? How are you using your time? Are we investing in things that are eternal? Life is short and very uncertain. And again, I'm quoting J.C. Ryle here. He says, you never know what a day may bring forth. Business and pleasure, making money and spending money, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, all all will soon be over and done with forever. And you... What are you doing for your immortal soul? Are you wasting time or using it wisely? Are you preparing to meet God? Are you tuning your heart? Secondly, this is a poignant question, where will you be in eternity? Where are you going to be? It's coming. Coming very fast upon us. We are going there. But where will you be? On the right hand or on the left? In the day of judgment. Are you among the lost or among the saved? Do not rest until your soul is secured. Be prepared. Leave nothing uncertain. It is a dreadful thing to die unprepared and fall into the hands of the living God. And might I also say this and add this. It is a sad thing for those that you leave behind to wonder about your faith and to wonder about where you will be in eternity. I have seen believers and I've seen tears well up in their eyes and say, I'm so concerned that my my parent or this loved one may or may not have known Jesus as their Savior. You know, be a comfort not only to your own soul, but be a comfort to your family and those you love by expressing and living a life of faith. Thirdly, do you want to be safe now and in eternity? Then seek Christ and believe Him. Come to Him just as you are. Seek Him while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. There is still a throne of grace. It is not too late. Christ waits to be gracious. Here he comes. He invites you to come to him before the door is shut and the judgment begins. Repent, believe, and be saved. And lastly, J.C. Ryle says this, and I'll conclude with this. He says, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be happy? Cling to Christ and live a life of faith in him. Remain in him and live close to him. Follow him with with heart and soul and mind and strength and seek to know him better every day. By doing so, you will have great peace while you pass through the temporary things. And in the midst of a dying world, you will never die. By doing so, you will be able to look forward to eternal things with unfailing confidence and to feel and know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And might I add that Jesus declares in the Gospel of John, that I go and prepare a place for you, that you may dwell with me forever.
Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that the images of Scripture would comfort our souls. Father, we pray, Lord, that they would give us a perspective about what we are called to love and be. And Father, we are so thankful that that Jesus is the kind husband, the kind husband who picks us up in the midst of our disgrace and shame. Father, that He expands our borders, that He gives us and makes us children of the promise. And Father, He is building an eternal city that will never be conquered, and that is secure. And within the walls of the eternal city, Father, there will be peace and there will be joy and there will be singing like we have never heard. And we long for the day when we will be with you. So, Father, help us, save us, encourage us, build our faith and hope and love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.